and welcome to another episode of Damn Interesting Week. We have a lot of great articles to talk about today. My name is Jennifer Lee Noonan. I'm Angela Epley. I'm Whisper Chen. And this was a Damn Interesting Week. So let's get started with our first link. First link. All right. We're going to do a little quick dive into William Dampier, pirate scientist. Ooh. Since at least Francis Drake's time, buccaneers have been identified as circumnavigators, colonialists, and explorers as much as swashbucklers and murderers. Yeah. <laughs> learn and burn. Yeah. Learn and burn, it's like baby. if Darwin murdered a bunch of people. <laughs> yeah. We go the other way. <laughs> yeah. There's so much more overlap than I would have expected. Yeah. But William Dampier stands out because no pirate kept a better journal than he did. Hmm. And he would always write down meticulous observations of the natural world. And that's because buccaneers, which I learned today, is a term used for pirates that are primarily restricted to the Caribbean region. It's like champagne. It's only champagne if it's from the, the champagne region of France. They're only buccaneers if they're authentic Caribbean pirates. That's it. There that's exactly go. right. Caribbean scholar John Ramsaran quotes another scholar who imagines Dampier, quote, writing up his journal in the intervals between looting a wine shop or sacking a village. <laughs> <laughs> His first book, A New Voyage Around the World, was published in 1697. After almost two decades of buccaneering, Dampier purposefully downplayed his piratical actions in the novel while sure. emphasizing his novel scientific discoveries. Mm -hmm. So, you know, clearly it seems like he's trying to cleanse the criminal past, downplaying the acts of violence and presenting him himself as a, an explorer and scientific journalist. He's trying to go legit. Exactly. He, he insisted that his journey was motivated more to indulge my curiosity <laughs> rather than to get wealth. You know, sure. But his rebranding was successful because the scientific community got so much out of it. While other members of the Buccaneer Party were defending themselves against charges of piracy, Charles Montague, the president of the Royal Society, commissioned him to explore the coast of New Holland <laughs> legitimately. Did they pay him? Or were they just like, you seem to be pretty yeah. good at, at getting your own payment. Just <laughs> deal with it yourself. Like, oh, no. I mean, it was a government-sponsored expedition. So, yeah, they paid him to do it. You know, I think it's because he had proven himself to be someone who could yield enough stuff, right? Mm -hmm. They knew they would get some good information. And, hey, oh, yeah. probably take care of himself, right? Yeah, you don't have to worry <laughs> about your notes getting lost in a storm. Yeah. <laughs> Next link. Next link. This article comes to us from gizmodo.com. It's titled Amateur Metal Detectorist Finds Astonishing Gold Hoard Buried by Pre-Viking Chieftain. Hmm. Ole Jinnerup Scheitz had only recently acquired his metal sniffing device when he got permission to probe a schoolmate's property in Vindelev, a Danish town located 10 minutes from Jelling. Scheitz had only been working for a few hours when he stumbled upon the Dream Find, a gigantic wow. gold hoard dating back to the Danish Iron Age. So there are a lot of Danish names in this article, which I'm absolutely going to butcher, so <laughs> let's just accept it. Yeah. Archaeologists with Vejlin Musirn and the National Museum were called in to conduct a full excavation. In total, nearly 2.2 pounds, or a whole kilo of gold, was pulled from the ground. Oh and that's about $56,000 worth of gold by today's standards. Wow. 
I yeah. mean, and that's like the bullion weight. That's not the archaeological significance of it. I bet it's yeah. worth more as an artifact. This is yeah. like the yeah, absolutely. every amateur metal detectorist is hoping to find. Yeah. And this guy gets it like his first day out. <laughs> like, I bet everybody else hates him right now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And they don't really discuss how exactly the gold went from this person to the museum. Because, mm-hmm. you know, it has historic value. But at the same time, you find $56,000 of gold and it goes straight to the museum. I'd be pretty bummed. Yeah. I mean, I think there's actually like laws about that stuff where it's like, oh, this actually belonged to the government all along. Like, I bet they just took it. I bet all he gets is the fame of being the guy who found it. Yeah, absolutely. So the Vindelev Horde, as it's now called, was found at the site of a former longhouse. A village stood here some 1500 years ago, approximately 300 years before the onset of the Viking Age. The relics included bracteates, round gold pendants typically worn as part of a necklace. Some were the size of coffee saucers and decorated with motifs and rune inscriptions. And this entire article has tons of pictures of the gold. It's beautiful, incredibly well-preserved. Highly recommend checking it out if you like shiny gold things. (laughs) Preliminary analysis suggests the runes make reference to Norse mythology or contemporary rulers, but more study is needed. One bracteate features a braided male head in apparent conversation with a horse and bird. A runic runic inscription on the relic makes reference to the High One, a possible reference to Odin or the chieftain who buried the hoard, according to the press release. Hmm. The stash also included Roman coins crafted into jewelry. One particularly heavy gold coin dates back to Constantine the Great, the emperor who in 313 CE declared tolerance for Christianity in the Roman Empire. Mads Raven, head of research at Velimusern in the museum release, said only a member of the absolute cream of society would have been able to collect a treasure like the one found here. Researchers will now have to figure out the circumstances that led the chieftain to bury so much gold. Possibilities include a cash in the event of a war or a religious offering. And another possibility is that the ruler just hid the gold from invaders or even inhabitants of Vindelev. That the chieftain was hiding the gold is a distinct possibility. Scandinavia Mm. was a, uh, quote, a bit of a mess, unquote, (laughs) during this time period (laughs) on account of a volcano that erupted in El Salvador around 539 CE. And that affected the Scandinavians? I guess so. Wow. Yeah. So, yeah, archaeological research from earlier shows the eruption triggered a global scale climate disaster, yeah. resulting in years of crop failure and famine. Mm. So, gold hordes from this time period are actually apparently quite common in Scandinavia, including a stash that was recently found on the Danish island of Hjarno in 2018. So, the Vindelev Horde will soon be included as part of the Danish Museum's Viking Exhibition, which is scheduled to open February 3rd, 2022. So, if you like museums, Danes, and gold, then you have a vacation plan now. I mean, I do like the fact that it's like, it's engraved with the high one, and that they're like, that could be God, or just the guy who owned it. Like, yeah. that's, you know, a pretty big <laughs> range between <laughs> the two possibilities. Yeah, that's true. It feels like historians are often like, oh, it could be like a religious ceremony. It's like, no, it's always the most practical thing. Nobody yeah. buries a fortune in gold <laughs> to just give it to God, especially when your country is falling apart. Yeah, this was an escape plan that went haywire. It was his go bag. Exactly. <laughs> yes. <laughs> all right. Well, we all have PhDs now. I think that's how it works. <laughs> yeah, so. absolutely. I mean, that's why I'm on this podcast. You know, <laughs> right, right. PhD, so. Earning credit. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Next link. 
Next, next link. link. All right. Well, speaking of buried treasure, this next article is from Messy Nessie Chic, and it's called How to Bury an Entire Museum. Oh. Yeah. It's basically a historical look at how three different museums saved their country's most precious artworks from the Nazis. And, you know, the German language is a little notorious, I think, for making up unique words for fairly complicated concepts, and they did so here as well. During World War II, the word for the concept of plundering art and cultural items from other countries was called Raubkunst. And the official entity in charge of this effort was the Reichsschlatter Rosenberg Task Force. And overall, it's estimated that they stole some 650,000 works over the course of the war. Many of which were eventually returned, but many remain at large to this day. But it turns out that's actually a fraction of what they could have stolen, because once it kind of became clear that this is what they were doing, a lot of countries saw the writing on the wall and engaged in some pretty cool efforts to protect their stuff. So we start with Greece, which entered the war in October of 1940 when Italian forces tried to invade along the Albanian border. They successfully repelled the Italians, but they knew it wasn't over. And they immediately formed the Committee of Hide and Secure, which I'm sure it sounds cooler in the Greek, but Hide and Secure, (laughs) to start digging tunnels underneath the National Archaeological Museum in Athens. So most of their collection was actually statues rather than paintings. And a curator at the time named Semni Karozu described it as being reminiscent of mass graves because they just put all these carved people into the dirt and buried them. Wow. But they had to keep the whole thing a secret, of course. So it wasn't a bunch of outside contractors doing the digging. It was mostly just people who worked at the museum. Karozu says they worked nearly 24 hours a day, and the trenches eventually stretched well past the museum under the surrounding city streets. They wrapped smaller items in boxes coated with tar to keep the moisture out, and then backfilled the entire thing with sand to hopefully prevent damage from any bombs that exploded on the surface. The whole process took six months, And they finished just 10 days before the Nazis took Athens in 1941. And when the Nazis came into the museum and found it empty, they asked the curators where everything was. And the curators answered coyly that everybody knows that ancient artifacts are found in the ground. Hmm. (laughs) And it worked. The Nazis never thought to look directly under the museum. And when the city was liberated in 1944, Greek officials just dug everything up again and put it right back in the museum. Love it. Wow. Meanwhile, in France, they decided that their art was safer outside the city entirely. Ironically, the national director of French museums, Jacques Jajard, actually had experience with evacuating museums because he had previously helped clear out the Prado Museum in Madrid during the Spanish Civil War. So on August 25th, 1939, the Louvre closed for three days under the pretense of repair work to the building. And during that time, 203 trucks were loaded with over 1,800 crates containing nearly 4,000 works. And they headed in all different directions to various castles in the countryside. Wow. And to keep the works anonymous, so nobody would kind of know what they had, each item was marked with colored dots to indicate its importance. Green was for major pieces, yellow for extra valuable ones, and red for the world's greatest treasures. The Mona Mm. Lisa, for example, was given three red dots. Wow. And the final piece to leave the Louvre was an eight-foot-tall sculpture of the goddess Nike called Winged Victory of Samothrace. And it made it out on the 3rd of September, the same day France declared war on Germany. Jacques Jajard decided that the best thing to do would be to keep things on the move. So items were sort of ferried about between various locations throughout the war. 
But the Mona Lisa in particular was stored in a bedroom so that there would always be somebody with it. Like somebody basically slept with the Mona Lisa right next to them and didn't know it. They all they knew was it was pretty important because it had three red dots on it. <laughs> <laughs> That's pretty incredible. Yeah. So England took a similar tactic, although they had a lot less land to work with. When the National Gallery's director, Kenneth Clark, suggested migrating the collection to Canada, Winston Churchill responded, hide them in caves and cellars, but not one picture shall leave this island. And I'm not going to grace you guys with a Winston Churchill impression. That's the best you're going to get out of it. (laughs) In the 10 days leading up to the British declaration of war, which happened on the same day as France, works by Da Vinci and Rembrandt and Van Gogh were sent to all these various locations in Wales. That was what they decided was least likely to be bombed. What? In in Wales? Yeah, in Wales. Oh, the the place Wales. No, no, yes, not the creatures. <laughs> okay, because yeah, you said sent in Wales, and I was like, you know, what? that would be an awesome place to hide <laughs> <Yeah>. them. <laughs> Sorry, please continue. But as the war intensified, they did change their minds. Bombs hitting the country of Wales started to look more and more likely. Plus, according to one historian, the owner of Penryn Castle in Wales was apparently a heavy drinker, and Kenneth Clark was worried that he might accidentally reveal the location of some of the items. So they moved everything again, they gathered it all up, and put it in an unused slate quarry called Manad, which had to be enlarged with explosives in order to fit the tallest works inside. Hmm. The trucks that moved pieces from the castles to the cave at Manad were disguised as postal trucks, and Cadbury chocolate delivery vans. And then once the war was over, they decided they wanted to keep the cave a secret in case they needed it again in the future. So they brought the works back out slowly and quietly, creating this picture of the month event at the National Gallery to celebrate each time a big one was returned. And this is actually something that the National Gallery is still doing to this day, although now, of course, they're just rotating works that got in storage. And then eventually the British government did admit where the cave was, which is how we know it's called Manad. And it's become a tourist attraction in itself. So if you ever want to go visit Mm. Wales and see a bunch of empty shelves built inside a cave, you can do that. (laughs) It feels like seeing the gold in the uh, Danish museum might be a little more interesting. But I don't know. If you like caves, maybe be all right. And shelves, you know. That's right. That's right. (laughs) If you're a fan of shelves, I mean, come on. It's the best shelf museum ever. Come on, kids. We're going to go see where the art used to be. Let's go. Exactly. And there's like little dust marks. You know how when you remove something and you've got that little circle, you can tell like, oh, that big rectangle. That used to be something. Sometimes it just blows my mind how much money and work and effort goes into the art world. And like, obviously, it has huge cultural value. But sometimes when I get a little reductionist, I'm like, but really, it's just paint. Right, right. You know, like, it's so wild how much goes into this, like, purely symbolic value. And, and how much money rotates around it at all times. Right. Yeah. And lives were lost. I mean, they had yeah. people oh, protecting yeah. these things. There was a very mm-hmm. good chance that the Germans were going to, you know, murder the people driving these trucks. But then, of course, yeah. like the flip side of it is like whether or not it's logically valuable, the Germans, if they got it, would be able to sell it and then they'd have more money for their war machine. So there yeah. is a certain element of like, well, we can't let them have it. But yeah, and and it's not like I'm saying they shouldn't have done this stuff. It's just right. crazy that we do this as human beings, you right? Know? As a species, kind of wacky. Yeah, yeah absolutely. <laughs> Next link. Next, Next link. link from ZME Science. It's time to give a little bit of appreciation to the humble 
hexagon. Oh. All right. The hexagon shape shows up a lot in nature, but why? <laughs> I mean, nature is messy <laughs> and irregular. So why is it that across a variety of different natural phenomena, the hexagon continues to show up? Well, when you think of a hexagon occurring in nature, what's the first thing that you think of? Oh, it's got to be the honeycomb. honeycomb. Yeah. yeah. There you go. The honeycomb is probably the most identifiable iteration of this hexagon pattern in nature. So this is something that has stymied folks all the way back to Greek philosophers. Even Pappas of Alexandria studied hexagons over 1600 years ago, and he considered that bees have, quote, a certain geometrical forethought. Oh, mm. so florid. I love it. But it's not just bees. Dragonflies, their eyes have about 30,000 hexagons interlaced in a dazzling wow. array. And they're considered some of the best eyes in the animal world. Hmm. They have two large compound eyes with thousands of hexagonal lenses, as well as three eyes with simple lenses. But we're going to ignore those for now because I guess five eyes is whatever <laughs> too much. They're like, we're not talking about that. We're talking about hexagonal. <laughs> Pretty much. I mean, like we're focusing on this, but I'm like, dragonflies have how many eyes? What? Yeah. I mean... But, you know, we've gone from little teeny tiny, we're going to go super macro now. The planet Saturn has one of the most peculiar hexagons in the entire solar system, which is a cloud pattern that's mm. about 9,000 miles long. It's bigger than the whole diameter of the Earth. We don't know why it happens. <laughs> Researchers are not really sure. But ultimately, it's an efficient way to conserve energy. It's an efficient way to arrange atoms in a way that they're stable. It could also be something just geometrically programmed but something that deserves your attention the next time you ponder on a snowflake yeah it's also the best way to run a strategy game across a table it's i mean true. squares are no good they mess up your moves they're imbalanced what are you talking about like board game stuff yeah 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 like if you have a strategy game and there are squares it's faster to go diagonally than it is to go up one and then over one so by definition if you're playing on a square board you should always go diagonally but huh. if you're on hexagons then you can go in any direction and it's all equal. That's why, like, advanced, like, strategy nerds are all, like, hexes only. Like, anything on squares <laughs> is for amateurs. <laughs> don't ask me how I know. <laughs> I honestly, I don't actually play that many games. It's more that just, like, if I'm going to play, I want to know how to win. So I, I have a certain amount of knowledge about, like, this is the most efficient way to move across a board. If you happen to be in a situation where you need to be moving across a board. There yeah. you go. Rolodex of win at all costs is uh, impressive right. in your brain. <laughs> Next link. Next, Next link. link. This article comes to us from theguardian.com. It's titled Croatian Police Solve Mystery of Woman with No Memory Found on Rock. This is always so fascinating to me that these stories are real. Because, like, the idea of, like, oh, it's amnesia, they don't know who they are, that feels so fictional. Mm -hmm. Like, it feels like a giant plot device in a bad TV show. It's a hackneyed present. Yeah. We've seen it show up so much that it feels like fiction. Yeah. But, like, so this is real. This really happened to a lady. Yeah. And, wow. you know, like, this is why fiction exists, because the real stuff happened, and then fiction is like, oh, that happens? Okay. Let's run with it. I mean, yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's personally kind of my stance, that most things that fiction has come up with is based on something that literally happened mm -hmm. at least once. Mm -hmm. Oh, sure. Obviously, with many embellishments. But uh, so in terms of the reality of what happened, a woman rescued from a Croatian island with no memory of how she got there, where she came from, or who she was has been identified as a Slovakian former designer who had lived in the U.S. and made jewelry for celebrities, including Diana Ross. Huh. Oh, 
Yeah. So, like, this wow. woman isn't just any random woman who had this awful experience and thing happened to her. Like, she's somebody that people know and is actually kind of, like, a big deal hmm. in this culture. So Croatian police on Wednesday named the woman as Daniela or Dana Adamkova, 57, adding that her identity had been established after friends and acquaintances from Croatia and Slovakia recognized her from a photograph released on Monday. Hmm. The news site 24 Sata said confirmation of Adamkova's identity had also come from the U.S., where she lived on and off until 2015, reportedly selling jewelry to stars including Bridget Bardot and Barbara Streisand. Wow. Her work was also featured in the series Friends. <laughs> so she was discovered on September 12th on the island of Kirk, sitting on a jagged rock close to the sea in a remote part of the island. Police said she spoke perfect English but had no ID or phone. Officials on Wednesday described her condition as stable and said she was responding to treatment in the hospital in the town of Rijeka on the Croatian mainland. Social services would take over once she was discharged from hospital care, they said. Hmm. One U.S. acquaintance, Nina Smith, told the Daily Beast Adam Kova had worked briefly at a company she managed in 2015 after being placed there by a nonprofit organization that helped homeless people find employment. Several years earlier, a magazine in her Slovakian hometown of Trenson, which she reportedly left in 1984 to say design in the U.S., published a profile of her describing her as a successful jewelry designer who had sold pieces to several stars. Adam Kova told the magazine she had studied fashion design in Santa Monica, subsequently coming into contact with the entertainment world through a successful film producer she began dating and later married. The couple reportedly divorced in 2000, and Adam Kova returned to Slovakia, where she remained until 2008. It's unclear when she returned to the U.S., but between 2015 and 2018, she was reportedly in Ireland working in shelters for the homeless before returning again to Trenton. A Slovakian friend living in Zagreb also recognized Adam Kova from the police photo, while a couple of Czech tourists remembered meeting her on Croatia's Dalmatian coast. They recalled she was from Slovakia and was holidaying alone. Police described her as dehydrated and confused, saying she appeared to have spent more than one night in a remote area visited by bears and wild boar. Whoa! Yeah, she was so weak that she was unable to drink water unaided, and her face was cut. Oh my gosh. Wow. Yeah. Really intense. And you can see, like, there's some photos, you know, like, it really is just her. She's a little messed up, but also kind of the look in her eyes. You can tell she's been through this really intense event. Wow. So it's really unfortunate that this happened, but also pretty outrageous and a little sensational in that there's this person that was super important and now they don't remember who they were. And it's like literally something out of a movie or a film, you know? I yeah. mean, I can't even put myself into that position because it's so strange to me. Well, and it's yeah. cool that in this day and age, they can just put a photo out on the internet and you'll get not only like family members and previous employers, but random tourists. Mm -hmm. Like what a nice thought that like if you were uh, lost all your memory and were found abandoned on a beach, some random person you ran into on your last vacation might be like, oh, yeah, I know her. She said she was yeah. from Austin. And like, that's just it's nice. That's heartwarming. Yeah, it, it is great that she was found. And it's great that we have the Internet and people were looking out. So even though she's clearly going to have some, you know, a lot of stuff to put back together in her life or maybe start anew. Who knows? Uh, I think overall, this is, you know, the best possible outcome, I guess. Yeah, she can bounce back. If she was successful in doing all these things before, obviously something bad happened to her, but I feel like she's going to make a recovery. That's what I'm, I've yeah. decided. <laughs> Here's hoping. Yeah. Put that positive energy out. That's to her, right. I guess. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> Next link. Next, Next link. link. Well, you know, we've talked a lot on this podcast about how to live on Mars. 
But what we haven't talked a whole lot about is how to die on Mars. And this article from astronomy.com, it's not looking so much at ways to die, but rather what happens when a human inevitably does die on the red planet. Because, you know, the reality is shipping your body back to Earth, it's a nice sentimental choice, but it's probably not going to happen. Even once we've got a working outpost, it's still going to be very expensive to make the trip. Mm -hmm. But on the flip side, the least sentimental option of recycling the organic material into useful stuff or even, you know, food for the funeral party is probably too much for even like the most cold hearted scientist to accept. So, realistically, the author here suspects that we're going to settle on the middle ground of Martian cemeteries. (laughs) Yeah. But the issue with that, and there are many, is that decomposition won't work the same way on Mars as it does on Earth. So, when a body dies on Earth, there are several phases. First, the body cools, which is known as algor mortis. Then the blood begins to pool downward due to gravity, also known as liver mortis. Then we get to the more familiar state, rigor mortis, which is when the muscles start to stiffen. But the stiffness only lasts for a short time because enzymes in the body start to break down our cells in a process called autolysis. Meanwhile, the bacteria in our gut that digest our food just keep right on trucking and begin to digest us from the inside out. And I didn't know that. That's actually what's happening when a body is starting to rot. It's not usually bacterial infections from the outside. It's our own bacteria trying desperately to stay alive. Wow. And then finally, of course, the circle of life becomes complete as scavenger species such as insects and carrion birds and even some species of fungi discover the tasty meal that we've left behind and start to work inward. So Nicholas Pasalacqua, the forensic anthropology director at Western Carolina University, notes that these are species that have evolved alongside other forms of life on Earth. And while it may seem like an obvious statement, it's actually a big deal that as there is no life on Mars, there are no creatures that fill that scavenger niche either. Mm-hmm. So what happens when there are no bacteria or fungi or anything else to break down dead matter? Pasalacqua says we can actually look to similar environments on Earth, namely places where it is so cold that none of these species can survive. Of course, Mars itself is also very cold, with temperatures ranging from a balmy 24 degrees Fahrenheit during the warmest part of the day all the way down to negative 140 degrees Fahrenheit at night. So assuming that we bury these bodies in Martian soil or, you know, just chuck them outside the habitat, we can expect that they will freeze. But since Mars is so dry, we can also expect that moisture will evaporate quickly from the corpses through sublimation and basically turn them very quickly into desiccated mummies. Hmm. What's more... The bacteria in our gut are largely aerobic, meaning they need oxygen to live. So they would actually die off very quickly once we're placed outside. And the few anaerobic species we do have inside us would only last a little bit longer before freezing to death. Freezing will also halt the enzymes responsible for autolysis. And so what we're looking at is extremely well-preserved corpses that simply will not go away over time. And aside from the waste of resources, that's actually a problem long term, because the thing is, on Earth, we actually reuse cemetery plots quite a bit once the bodies in them have fully decomposed. Like, we don't necessarily think about it, but if every person who ever lived and died on Earth was still right where we left them, 
There'd be bodies mm-hmm. everywhere. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> so Pasalacqua says, like it or not, we are probably looking at the recycling option, even though most people won't want to think about it. I'm fine. I would prefer to think about it because at least that provides materials that are going to be really difficult to obtain or ship or discover on a planet that has no reason to support this kind of life. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I think <laughs> as the person who is dying, you're okay with it. But if you're the person who's still alive and like you lost your beloved father and now you're eating dinner going like he's in here, like there's definitely parts (laughs) of him in this. I don't know. I think it's the people who are still alive who are most disturbed by it. Well, that's true of every hang up we have about death. Right. That's true. (laughs) Yeah. We have proposed a solution for this in the past, which seemed inappropriate for Earth, but might be the ticket for Mars, which is to shoot the corpses into space. That's true. But then also... I mean, I guess they'd probably burn up, but there's no atmosphere to burn them up. So, like, would you end up... Because this happened on, God, what was it, Avenue 5? It was a a show with Hugh Laurie about a luxury space liner. And, like, they shot a body out into space, not realizing that it was just going to orbit the ship. And so, like, (laughs) there's just this dead body constantly orbiting the ship throughout the show. It's very funny. It's done very well, but... (laughs) Wow. I've never even heard that show. I want to check that out Oh, it's so good. I mean, yeah, because what I'm imagining now is a, essentially, like, a hearse ship, you know? Right. Like, you just have a ship that is set course for the sun or something like that. I don't know. Yeah, or maybe you've just got your, like, your regular transport ships, stack a couple of corpses in there, and then they have, like, you know, just shoot them out the airlock while they're in space yeah. far enough away that they're not going to go into orbit. Yeah. Then you resume your right. normal transport But, duties. you know, put them in a cape and give them a cool name like the human <laughs> torpedo so that it can then become this, you know, installation, if yeah. you will. I guarantee you some Martian version of Banksy is going to be like, I've gone and put all these corpses up there. Reckon with it, you know? like. Look at us. Just a bunch of PhDs in here. Exactly. <laughs> there is, for what it's worth, one other possibility which won't be available right away but could develop over time and that is the evolution of new scavenger species that are adapted to the martian environment because that's what evolution does right if there's a hole in the food web that needs to be filled something's going to eventually Mm -hmm. fill it so if we did have ourselves a little martian cemetery right outside the habitat especially if we keep it just a little warmer than the surrounding wasteland it's possible, they say, that the anaerobic bacteria we brought in with us could adapt surprisingly rapidly, and that could actually speed up our terraforming efforts in the long run by creating this rich soil full of organic matter, which is what we have on Earth, even though we we don't like to think about it, but our dead people on Earth are recycled into our food. It's just a much slower natural process. Yeah, yeah. But I don't know. I have to admit, the word cemetery kept popping up so much in this article, I kept thinking of pet cemetery. And I was like, what if we get to Mars and we find out, like, you bury something in the Martian soil and it comes back? Like, Martian zombies? Yeah. Or or even just sort of this, you know, conjecture of maybe the bacteria can evolve. Well, yeah, but in what direction? Maybe it'll evolve to replicate what we have on Earth, which is what it sounds like they're hoping. But maybe we could create some kind of super Martian bacteria that's like, and now we have zombies. That's right. And then... If we get the zombies, the way we deal with them is to shoot them into space. And so now you have living-ish zombies rotating around the planet. It's like an armor barrier. Like it protects you from people. It's that old Coke commercial of, you know, if I could give the world a Coke and we'll all hold hands, except it's really more like zombie planetary defense. Exactly. Exactly. (laughs) All right. Well, that is all we have time for today. We're so glad you've joined us. 
Some of the articles we did not have time to get to today include The Epic Adventures of the Gilgamesh Dream Tablet, The Great Sperm Heist, and Why Beavers Were Parachuted into the Idaho Wilderness 73 Years Ago. So all that and more, plus everything we talked about today, can be found on damninteresting.com. If you like our podcast and like that we don't interrupt your day with advertisements, you can support us by going to patreon.com slash damninterestingweek. In the meantime, my name is Jennifer Lee Noonan. I'm Angela Epley. I'm Wasper Chen. And we hope you have a damn interesting week. Bye-bye.